Our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dave, for reading God's word for us this morning. Uh, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus, and I'm just so grateful that you've come to uh, join with us this morning. And uh, whether this is your first time or you've been coming for a long time, we're so glad that you're here and, and celebrating the good news of the gospel as a community with us uh, today. Well, before we look at this passage this morning, I'd love to pause and pray. Um, Lord God, we wish to see Jesus by your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, it's uh, passages like this that make me really look forward to going on sabbatical. Um, and this letter has definitely taken us uh, into some difficult places, hasn't it? Um, passages like this one make me wonder, uh, and make us wonder, I think, as people when we come to it, is, is the Bible just sort of hopelessly antiquated? Long hair, short hair, head coverings, no head coverings, and then it's the head of who is the head of what? And it's like, are we really going to talk about this on a Sunday morning together? And I imagine, especially if you're a woman, and very understandably, uh, your guard immediately went up when you heard that text read. Um, you're not sure what Paul's saying, but you're pretty sure you don't like it. Um, I, can I can only imagine. Uh, and in light of that, uh, I actually had several women uh, read my message this morning ahead of time and gave, gave input, input and feedback, and so I'm really thankful uh, for their help on this message. And despite the cultural distance and what seems like a really confusing flow of thought at times in this passage, the core of Paul's thought here is really pretty simple. And, and notice I didn't say easy to understand or necessarily easy to accept, but it's pretty simple. And Paul's point is simply this, 
that, that it's for glory that God made us different. It's for glory that God made us different. And yet we know that the relationships between men and women, though they were created for glory, are haunted by discord and brokenness. And we're reminded of this in, in the news regularly, whether it's the stories of domestic abuse by prominent athletes or the continual stories of rape and sexual assault on college campuses or in the ranks of the military. And this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, we all know that this is an area of brokenness, that the way that we relate to one another as men and women is, is broken, that it's flawed, that the fall has utterly shattered this relationship. And, and it's, we can't even imagine our relationships without the taint of sin. And so this morning, while we may have some deep-seated and legitimate questions about what biblical passages like this one mean for us, it's clear that we as a society are far from having this male-female relationship thing figured out. So as we come to a passage like this, it's important to do so with humility, to come to it asking, seeking to understand as best we can what it's saying and what it means for us, knowing that when it comes to seeking flourishing for all people, seeking flourishing between men and women, that we need all the help we can get. But this raises another question. Why are we spending time in a text like this at all? Why are we even choosing to preach on a passage like this one? And the answer is not because I wanted to. I can assure you of that. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. I'd much rather not preach this text. But this is exactly why we preach passages or we preach books at Christ Community, that we don't just hand pick texts, but that we preach through whole books. It forces us to talk about things that we wouldn't otherwise talk about. And so we're talking about this passage because it's here, because it's part of God's word. And we believe that all of God's word, even the difficult parts, are given for our good, for our flourishing. Now, before we go any further, I want to say two things. First, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I just want to say right from the beginning, this is something that we can disagree on. I believe that there are Christians, genuine followers of Jesus who love the Bible, who study the text and come down in a different place than we have as a church. And the church ought to be a place where, where we can disagree in ways that people outside the church can't. Because we have the foundation of the gospel, we're able to be humble and yet passionate and winsome in our conversations and convictions. And so I just want you to know this morning, if you are here and you're a Christian and you, and you disagree with what we say here, that I hope this still feels like home, like you have a place, because you do. You belong here. And second, if you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, or you're questioning your faith and wrestling with, does this Christianity thing, does it really make sense of the world in which I live? Maybe you're going to hear everything we say here this morning and respond that this is exactly why, Bill, that I couldn't be a Christian. I just can't believe this stuff. And to you, I just want to say this morning that, that this isn't the center of our faith. It's important, but it's not the bright center of our faith. The question for you this morning is not, does, does Bill interpret 1 Corinthians 11 correctly? The question for you is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, then none of this matters. And so if you're considering Christianity, if you're wrestling with your faith... The central question for you this morning isn't how should I understand 1 Corinthians 11, but did Jesus rise from the dead? 
And I would encourage you to focus your study, your thought, your questioning around that. So as we arrive then in this part of the letter that Paul's writing to the Corinthians, it's important to remember that this church had a lot of problems. This was a church that was far from perfect. They were a mess. They were a beautiful mess, but they were still a mess. They were arrogant. They were divided. They were visiting prostitutes. Their marriages were, were all kinds of a mess as well. And in this new section, Paul is addressing the problems that they had in their worship services. And, and he starts off in this passage by addressing kind of the seemingly bizarre issue of head coverings. And we're going to get to that this morning. But then in next week, he's going to deal with this sort of social snobbery that existed as they were celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And then it's actually going to take us several weeks to unpack how they were elevating one spiritual gift over another. But in every case, this week and in the next several weeks, as we look at these problems in the worship services, what we realize is that it all stemmed from a misunderstanding that it's for glory that God made us different, that he granted different gifts, that he granted different statuses. And so this morning as we look at this passage, I want to organize our conversation around three main headings. First, why it is that we hate these words. Second, why it is that we need these words. And then third, how do we live these words? So why do we hate these words? Why do we need them? And then finally, how do we actually live these words out? So first we need to stop and examine why we hate these words. Now, now hate might be a little bit strong, but I think for some of you here this morning, that's exactly how you do feel toward these words. And I would expect for most of us here, there is at least a low-level sense of discomfort with them, even if we think that we agree with them. And I think there are several reasons for this. I think the first reason for this is that we just don't understand them. And this is a notoriously difficult text to interpret, regardless of what you think about what Paul is saying. Uh, one commentator put it this way, that this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text in the co of comparable length in the New Testament. <laughs> so, well, that's all then. That's good. Well, we're going to handle that in 30 minutes this morning with no problem. Um, but we can be confident of this, that, that head coverings for women were a cultural practice. You notice we weren't handing them out as you came in this morning. <laughs> Um, for women back in the first century, to have your head covered in public communicated that you were, or to have it uncovered rather, communicated that you were unmarried and sexually available. So imagine a woman standing up in church in Corinth to pray or to preach, and when Paul talks about prophesying, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament would have been very similar to what we call preaching today. And listen, women did preach and prophesy in the early church, and Paul was totally fine with that, as are we at Christ Community. Um, Pastor Jeanette preaches here, as did Pastor Claire during her pastoral fellowship. But, but imagine a woman getting up to preach or prophesy in Corinth, and simultaneously, even if unintentionally, communicating with, with her body, with what she was wearing, that she was looking for a lover. Just not helpful, Right? Now, a cultural symbol in our time is, is a wedding ring, right? And uh, I wear mine all the time. Um, but not every couple marries a wedding ring, but most of us do, right? If you're married, you wear a wedding ring. It's a symbol of this important relationship, not only to the couple, but to everyone who sees that symbol. 
And we have other practices like this in our culture as well. If you're at a, a Royals game and the Star Spangled Banner starts playing at the beginning, the national anthem, right? Everyone stands up, guys take off their, their hats and place it over their hearts. There's these symbols of, of reverence, of, of respect <clears throat> that we have. And why? Because it's a cultural symbol of respect for our nation. It's the, it's the proper thing to do. It's the expected thing to do. So in the first century context, wearing a head covering or the length of your hair, similar to wearing a wedding ring or standing, in the, uh, standing for the, the national anthem, this was a way of showing a propriety of respect. Now today, head coverings, they don't communicate any of that. Um, but the point is propriety, honoring the distinctions between men and women. And in fact, scholar Claire Smith makes a compelling point when commenting on this passage that actually head coverings today no longer are relevant to us because they end up communicating the exact opposite thing that Paul is trying to communicate in this passage. She writes, in actual fact, veils today more often mean the exact opposite of what Paul intends. Friends familiar with Muslim culture, which is primarily where veils are worn these days, tells me their head coverings are a sign of subservience, inequality, rather than a visual reminder of authority that occurs within a relationship of equal worth and dignity. But maybe you're thinking then, how can we just decide what's cultural and what isn't? Well, when you read your Bible, there's always two questions that you need to ask. What is the author trying to say to his original audience? And then what does this mean for us today? And Paul gives us a clue in this text of how we're to interpret it. In verse 10, he refers to the head covering as a symbol of authority. It's not the actual thing, which does matter, but it's a symbol. The thing itself, the, the picture matters, but the symbol of what tells that picture, that's what's culturally and contextually specific, and it's interchangeable depending on the cultural context. The same thing with men and long hair. You see, the Bible allowed men to have long hair. If you read the Old Testament, the Nazarite vow, men grew their hair long. This was uh, Samson or John the Baptist. If you're familiar with those characters in the biblical story. They had long hair. So long hair like head coverings wasn't the issue. The issue was what these things communicated to people in Corinth when they were worshiping together. And for them, that would have meant a blurring of genders. Richard Hayes, who's... Uh, at Duke University, he's a foremost New Testament scholar, summarizes this well, quoting Wayne Meeks. He says, in brief, Paul leaves unquestioned the right of women led by the Spirit to exercise the same leadership roles in the assembly of the church gathered as men, but insists only that the conventional symbols of sexual difference in clothing and hairstyle be retained. And we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but the point of head coverings and appropriate hair length, that isn't the issue that we're talking about here primarily. It's that there's something unique, that there's something beautiful about men and women together that can't be dismissed. So are you following this so far? This is where, where we're going. A second reason that we struggle with these words is not only because we don't understand them, but because we've seen them abused. And we are rightly wary of any text that would seem to suggest in the inequality or subjugation of women. In their book, Half the Sky, Cheryl Wooden and her husband, Nicholas Kristoff, detail the horrific abuse of women around the world. And they start off their book by saying, in the 19th century, the prominent moral challenge was slavery. In the 20th century, it was totalitarianism. And they say, in this century, 
It is the brutality inflicted on so many women and girls around the globe, sex trafficking, acid attacks, bride burnings, and mass rape. If you've read the book, there's stories that they cite back up this claim. What many women face in the world is horrific and it's deeply disturbing. And God hates it. It's evil, it must be stopped, and God will be judge. Emotional, verbal, physical abuse are all too common in our city, in our neighborhood, and even at times in church communities. And I just want to say to you this morning, if you're here and you have experienced or you are experiencing abuse, first of all, it's, it's not your fault, and please get help. Talk to one of us as, as pastors. Call the police. We will get you help. God hates that abuse, and we as a church will never tolerate abuse of any kind in our community. And in our culture, there's still, even in the United States today, there's still much more subtle ways, but no less wrong ways that, that women are oppressed, such as unequal pay for the same job or glass ceilings on access to positions of power in the workplace. And so when we read a text like this, we rightly ask, doesn't this justify that abuse? And it is true that these words can be abused, but they don't have to be. And when you read the scope of the Bible, you realize that the Bible is not anti-women. In fact, everything we read in the Bible here takes place in a culture where women had no rights at all. And Paul and Jesus both pushed back hard against that culture and they affirmed and valued and sought the rights of women in ways that would have been absolutely unheard of in that cultural context. The early church was a safe place for women, caring for them, giving them places of dignity and roles of significance unheard of in the ancient world. So we stand here in the 21st century and look back and call them regressive, but look at them from where they were. They would have been considered ridiculously progressive in the first century. So the Bible is, is pro-women, made in the image of God. And finally, I think we push back on these words because we push back on what seems like any sort of limitation at all for, for any of us, right? I mean, we live in a world without limitations. We don't like anyone telling us what we can and cannot do. And so when it sounds like Paul is putting limits on women that he's not putting on men, we're immediately questioning, wait, what's going on here? We, just, we don't like limits, do we? Who, no matter who we are. And so I want to get at that with this next main question that we're looking at this morning, which is why we need these words. Why is it that we need these words? I think there are three things happening here also that we need to look at. There's glory in being different. There's glory in needing each other. And there's glory in telling God's story. And glory simply make, means making a big deal about the goodness and truth and beauty of something or someone Glory is making a big deal about something or someone. So there's glory in being different. Men and women are not identical. Anatomically, hormonally, chromosomally, we are different. And not just physically. And, and that's a glorious and beautiful thing. It's part of God's good design for his world that we're different. Neither men nor women, for that matter, uh, neither women nor men, for that matter, should be mocked or demeaned for their uniqueness. Our uniqueness is how God has designed us to reflect his glory and beauty of who he is. 
And our difference is a magnificent part of his design for the world. It's for glory that God has made us different. And one of the key points that Paul is making in this text is that that men and women are equal, but they're not equivalent. They're not merely interchangeable. There are real differences between us. Most of us, I think, would agree that this is a good thing to be celebrated, but it's just the specifics, especially in a passage like this, that begin to give us trouble, right? Like when Paul writes in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's hard to even read these texts well because they're just kind of complicated and overlapping. But the issue is not an issue of equality. And yet clearly Paul does think that we're different. And there's no way around this. Paul believes that men are in a position of authority. (laughs) So great, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we can't miss that Christ is the head of man. And so husbands here this morning, you are responsible to Christ first and foremost. You are under his authority. And and look, if men took this seriously and radically exemplified Christ-likeness, selflessness to the point of death, selflessness to the point of doing the dishes when you don't want to, sacrificing ourselves to put others first and expanding ourselves, expending ourselves to elevate those we love. Look, if we as men massively exhibited the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, if those things were true of us as men, then whatever Paul means here about women would be much easier to accept. But the reality is, is that some of us as men, we're just the worst. And we've got to live in to who Christ has called us to be. So what does it mean for the husband to be the head of the wife? Well, Paul gives us a clarifying word picture. He says, come on, it's actually just like the head of Christ is God. He's going to help us understand by giving us that picture. And sort of like, oh, thanks, Paul. It's just like the Trinity because we all know how easy that is to understand. I love this, though, because it shows how complex it is and and the mystery of the relationship between men and women. We, We don't understand it fundamentally. And just like we've created doctrine that doesn't explain the Trinity, it protects the mystery of the Trinity. And that's what Paul is trying to do here, to protect the mystery of the relationship between men and women. Like the fact that God is both one and three, three and one, the the relationship between men and women, it's a mystery. And yet God the Father is in a position of authority over the Son. While on earth, Jesus trusted his Father and submitted to him. And yet at the very core of our beliefs, what it means to be a Christian is to understand that Jesus is fully God, equal to the Father, while yet being distinct and different at the same time. See, willingly, Jesus emptied himself of his rights in order to save us, to rescue us as his people. But in doing that, he never ceased to be God. And if that's the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, then this is a place of incredible dignity and joy, not subservience, not somehow less, but a place for glory. Think of it like a dance. If you've watched Dancing with the Stars, you've seen people who are really good at dancing. If they're really good, you can't tell who's leading. But someone is leading. 
It's not a domineering authority. It's beauty and it's grace personified. Mutual submission in the context of trust and partnership for glory. Unfortunately, we are broken as people and we bring that brokenness into our relationships. And we've made it more like a wrestling match than a dance. So go back to head coverings and, and this issue of the length of hair. Paul is saying, whatever this looks like in your cultural context, don't lose the distinction between men and women. We're not the same. God made you male and God made you female. Live out those distinctions with joy for his glory. And, and if you're curious for what all this means for the transgender conversation in our culture, um, send me an email. I'd love to pass on some resources that I think you'll find really helpful. Second, there's glory in needing each other. You see, we're better together as people. This week, Joshua Wolfshank, the author of the book Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs, he spoke at the Kansas City Public Library this week, and he looks at creative duos like John Lennon and Paul McCartney, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and, and many others, and he points out what makes these pairs so powerful was their complementarity. Each brought different but complementary things into the partnership, and they needed one another in order to accomplish the great things that they did. Alone, they could not have come even close to accomplishing what they did together. And th this principle works itself out in a micro level in marriages and friendships and creative partnerships and business. And on the macro level in organizational life and in communities and in, indeed in all of humanity as male and female work together as sort of the ultimate creative pair. God brings us together in this work of caring for and cultivating his, his culture, his world, without any apology or delusion to the tasks and endeavors which he called us to. And so women, if you're feeling a bit marginalized at this point, look at Paul, where Paul goes next. And he comes right back on men, leaving no room for pride or superiority. Now, though he begins that conversation, we've got to go here, but he begins the conversation in 7 through 9, and he says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the glory and image of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but for man. Now, I get it. That doesn't sound great. But hang with me a second. What Paul is doing is he's going back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And if we miss that, this does. It sounds really bad. But he's going back to Genesis 1 and 2 before sin entered the world, before abuse, before oppression. And the Bible declares that both men and women are fully created in the image of God, equal in status and standing before him. Adam was made first, and he's alone in the garden, and God gives him this massive task of, of cultivating the garden and keeping it and caring for it and, and developing it into all that it could possibly be. But soon it becomes very clear that he can't do it alone. He needs help. And God's solution to this is woman. Are you following this? Men are unable to fulfill the work given to humankind without women. So God had made Adam out of the dirt. I think that's a good lesson for us all to keep in mind. And Eve was made from Adam. But then Paul continues in verse 11. 
Woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born from woman, and all things are from God. So sure, Eve came out of man, but every other man ever in the history of the human race since has come from a woman. Paul knows how easy it is for men to abuse authority, and yet that doesn't stop him from saying these things about God's good design. But I I love how clear he makes it. Before we men even think about being domineering, stop and realize that we, that you are nothing without women. You wouldn't be here without a woman. There's glory in needing one another. And third, all of creation is telling a story. There's glory in telling God's story, including us as human beings, male and female, made in the image of God. We are telling a story. The way that we relate to one another tells the story of sacrifice and humility, of joy and self-giving. You see, in all the mystery of how this works, and trust me, it's a mystery, men and women together reflect the glory and beauty of the dance of the Trinity, of the triune God. Men and women together tell a bit of the story of God's Trinitarian life. It's interesting to note at this point that both more traditional conservative cultures and more progressive liberal cultures push back on what Paul says in these texts. You see, cultural conservatives push back against these words, wanting to disagree that women should be speaking in the church or having a vibrant voice in any way in the life of the church. On the other hand, cultural liberals push back against these words, wanting to argue that gender shouldn't speak at all into the roles that we play. However, the gospel gives us a a third way, a different way entirely of thinking about this. And Kathy Keller beautifully points out that in marriage, particularly, both men and women get to play the Jesus role in the story. She writes, both men and women get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. By accepting our gender roles and operating within them, we are able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they are lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. Healthy Christian marriages give a tiny glimpse into the goodness and glory of how God relates to himself. And of course, none of this makes sense at first glance, but the gospel changes everything the way that we view the world, even the way that we view ourselves and our relationships with one another. And that's what Paul keeps saying in this letter, right? That we have rights, but that Jesus is better than our rights. Okay, so finally, how do we live these words out in 21st century, century Kansas City? What does this look like today in Brookside? Well, first, since Paul is speaking directly to the church, what does it look like in the context of the local church community? Several years ago, as a church, we wrote a paper on this subject, working through all the texts in the Bible that deal with this uh, this issue, and we just reposted that onto our homepage. So if you're interested in reading that, it's really well done, I think, and I've talked to people who have come and read that paper from both sides, either feeling like Christ's community was too progressive or, or not progressive enough, and both have said, even if at the end of the day they didn't agree with where we landed, that the paper was really helpful and understanding how we've arrived at the position we, ha- we have. So if you have questions, I encourage you, it's posted on our homepage to take a look at it. 
But let me summarize here. Here in chapter 11, Paul gives women clear instructions for how they should pray and prophesy in church. So Paul is assuming here in in chapter 11 that women are speaking, leading in the context of the local church. But then if you go over to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, he tells women to be silent in the church. So which is it, Paul? Should they be speaking or should they be silent? Well, we have to understand the context of chapter 14. He is actually telling everybody, both men and women, they need to be quiet once in a while. Because ultimately, church isn't about being heard, but about hearing. Which is the irony of me talking for 35 minutes while you listen. That isn't lost on me as I say those words. (laughs) But as for women, uh, in in the context of elders weighing that command about silence, I should say, um, that comes in the context of elders weighing the words that have been spoken and giving doctrinal oversight to the church. It's in that moment, and that moment only, that the women were to refrain. And this, along with a couple of other passages in the New Testament, have led us to conclude that men only are allowed to be elders, which is our highest level of oversight as a church. Now you may ask, Bill, why did God design things this way? Well, it's certainly not because men are smarter or inherently better at knowing truth. And I think any man or woman who's been married uh, knows that. It's part of the mystery of God's good design. I don't know why he's designed it this way. And, And if it helps, according to our bylaws, as a staff member, I'm not allowed to be an elder either. So everyone has limitations, right? But that's the only limitation we believe the Bible requires of us. We have women pastors like Pastor Jeanette. We have Pastor Jennifer at the Olathe campus, Pastor Don at the Leewood campus. We have women community group leaders, women leading teams of both men and women teaching in all kinds of areas. We also believe that some women are gifted and called to preach just as some men are. And that's why Pastor Jeanette preaches here at Brookside on on a regular basis. She's going to preach while I'm on sabbatical. And when she does, like the women at Corinth, like me when I preach each Sunday, We do so under the authority of our elders. Everyone who stands in this pulpit, man or woman, is under the authority of our elders. That's how it works. Now, how does this look in the context of the home? And the Bible actually gives even fewer details about what this is supposed to look like in the context of the home, in the context of a marriage relationship. And the Bible certainly doesn't say that men should work in a nine-to-five job five days a week and that women should be raising children at home and have dinner on the table when dad gets home. I mean, that's, that's not a biblical idea. It's not an anti-biblical idea, but it's not a biblical idea. Sometimes, though, we've, we've brought our own cultural ideas and traditions and expectations and, and baptized them as God's design. But the reality is that there's massive freedom in the Bible for how the different responsibilities and tasks get worked out in marriage. Rachel takes the lead in many areas of our marriage, while I take the lead in others. And the key is that everything is done in love and respect and above all self-sacrifice for the good of the other. If you have a marriage where each person is constantly seeking to outdo the other one in giving up their rights and preferences, you'll have an amazing marriage that will be an incredible picture of the story that God is telling in the gospel. Men, you are to die daily for your wife. And I joked about it earlier, but someone would think, well, of course I'd lay down my, wife, my life for my wife. But you're probably not going to actually have to give up your physical life. But it's the moments of, of, yeah, doing the dishes when you don't want to. Getting up with the baby in the night when you don't want to. That's what dying to yourself looks like. 
Because that's what Jesus did for us. Your rights, your desires, every one of them takes a back seat to your wives. And don't you dare exploit her for yourself. Make it easy for your wife to respond to you with respect and care. Women, respond. Respond with respect also. Also dying to yourself. Not, not subservience, not acquiescence, certainly not with silence, but with joy and humility and conviction and passion. This is how God has designed the dance to work. And what about everywhere else in the broader culture, outside of the church and the home? Well, believe me, I think that women can and ought to be CEOs and senators and business owners and presidents. And yet the principle for all of us here, men and women alike, is that we live like Jesus no matter where God has placed us and no matter who he has made us. And Jesus gives up everything. That's our model for what this is to look like. Now as we come to a close today, you may still be struggling thinking, Bill, this is, you're still limiting women. It's, it's not right or it's not fair. And I understand. I'm a husband, I'm, I'm a father of a wonderful daughter, and I don't want in any way for, for my daughter or my wife to be excluded or oppressed because of their glorious God-given gender. And so why did God design it this way in a way that now that the fall has entered, that it opens up the doors for all kinds of, of problems? And again, Kathy Keller has been so helpful to me and Rachel as we've wrestled with this question. She writes, so why are women called to this position? And she says, the answer to that question is another question. The question is, why did Christ become the one to give authority to the Father? She says, we don't know, but what we do know is that it's a mark of his greatness. Jesus' willingness to let the Father take the lead in the dance is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of his glory and his greatness. Jesus willingly took this role, and it's the only reason that any of us have hope of rescue. And the one reason, it's the one reason why I know that what God calls women to be is, can't be that, that he's calling them to be lesser or inferior, because the last thing that Jesus was was lesser or inferior. Indeed, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're uh, so grateful that you and your wisdom that is beyond our comprehension have designed a good world of men and women together for your glory.